0: In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Mark Segar. Dr. Mark Segar is currently the director for the Auckland Bioengineering Institute's Laboratory for Animate Technologies. He is a two-time Oscar winner in the categories of Scientific and Engineering Awards for his work creating realistic digital characters for the screen. The technology has been used in Spider-Man 2, Superman Returns, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Avatar. The technology he created emerged out of his research completed in the late 1990s in a landmark study that explored how to develop an anatomically correct virtual eye and realistic models of biomechanically simulated anatomy. It was one of the first examples of how believable human features could be created on the screen by combining computer graphics with mathematics and human physiology. Dr. Sagar is the co-founder and chief science officer at Soul Machines, a company investigating how to use natural language processing with hyper-realistic visuals to create autonomously animated, emotionally dynamic digital people. In addition to developing new technologies, the research seeks answers to big questions. Should we be humanizing AI? How does feeding AI socio-emotional context help to create rich, multimodal, human-like experiences? And at what point are we teetering on sentience? And what is really at stake in the intersection of human cooperation with intelligent machines? He is also the founder of BabyX, a pioneering research initiative that seeks to combine models of physiology, cognition, and emotion with advanced lifelike CGI in an attempt to create a new form of biologically inspired AI. Dr. Sagar received his PhD in engineering from the University of Auckland and was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. In addition to his recognition by the Academy Awards, Dr. Sager was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand in 2019. Hi, Mark. Hi there. So, Mark, your your work really takes me to an ongoing debate about what it is that we do when we think. And as I understand it, your work kind of insists on, or is at least based in the premise, that thinking has an embodied and, and biological component quite I think contrary to how many people that I talk to in tech seem to think that the way that we think is analogous to a computer thinking um, and that you can, for example, just upload your consciousness to a computer. And if we could run a program that would get it to think, it would somehow be synonymous with our consciousness. I take the point of view that we actually do have a kind of embodied consciousness. That is to say that our consciousness is tied to the way that our biological systems inform and shape our consciousness. And my point of view, I think, insists on the idea that we can't do what we call thinking without taking into account the way that our metabolic embodied cells contribute to or even produce thought. So I want to know how, given a lot of your work, you think about thinking.
1: So yeah, I, I expand that to thinking and feeling. And in a in a way, I'd, it's probably possible for, I think, a machine to think, but not in the same way that we think about it, that we experience it ourselves. So when we think about things, we are often relating it to we grounded experience. So this is things that we've experienced growing up in our lives, like we've seen things, we've felt things. And so, everything that's happening is kind of being related to some sense of experience, which is actually linked in many cases to an emotional flavor of that as well. So, that when we think, we're constantly sort of activating all of these oddly sort of interceptive signals that we've associated with thought. So, we may, maybe if we're thinking about a crossword puzzle or something like that, that might be a bit more like how a computer might be thinking, because it may be just thinking about the words that fit themselves rather than the meaning of the word.
0: So I I guess I wanna pick up on this a little bit and take up the idea that you seem to think that even if machines right now cannot think like human beings because they don't have the kind of biological basis for that thinking, there might be a possibility for AI to think in this embodied way. And I'm curious, can we have an embodied AI?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can, it's funny because I'm using the word, I'm I'm conscious that I'm using the word think a lot. and An embodied AI, and it's sort of embodied intelligence, um, the basic concept of that is that you can't have a mind without a body. And, you know, one of the key things here is that the contents of the mind, a large part is about, the body it's about what's happening with the body so you know evolutionary speaking if an organism is is needing to um, refer to everything that's happening interceptively like in other words what's going on inside it like homeostasis like is it too hot too cold things like that but also outwardly and so everything for the survival of that organism is related to those things which can basically destroy it or make it prosper so keep building up with that and you know we end up as humans and then we're able to do abstract thought about different things so if we go into embodying intelligence in something like a robot if the robot has a sense of its own boundary and it has a sense of if it does something to the world and the world changes then it has an effect on that world then its intelligence starts, it has a consequential effect on its environment. And if, if it can reflect on that, then I would say we could start thinking about a robot having you know, embodied intelligence. Em- embodied intelligence, you know, I think there's a, a continuum of, of what we consider as intelligence as well. You know, a, a mouse is more intelligent than a fly, for example. And a dog is more intelligent than a mouse. And we've also, you know, we also have intelligence itself as a concept, but then we've got, you know, broader things like consciousness, which is the experience of the world, which contains being intelligent and doing actions, which sort of make you prosper. And unless you're um, the, uh, you know, the subject in the Dostoevsky notes from the underground and, and you want to do everything deliberately the opposite so um, to prove your volition. So so we've got very interesting angles on all of these.
0: But so I want to pick up on this idea that intelligence exists on, as you described it, a continuum, the way you put it, a, a mouse is more intelligent than a fly. I sometimes say to people who meet my dog that she is way smarter than I am. I think she's much more intelligent than I am. And they sort of laugh it off like, oh, you know, Deb just adores her dog. But I look at my dog and she's a very smart dog, but I don't think that she's like superlatively smart for a dog. I think to myself, well, she's had to learn a language of a different species to whom she does not belong. And the kinds of intelligence that she possesses is one that allows her to exist, first of all, in a, a body whose reality I, I can't even begin to understand, Pace, somebody who wrote, what is it like to be a bat? But also that she's had to navigate an environment engineered specifically for one species and not for her. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you're thinking about that idea of intelligence to begin with and whether or not we can separate intelligence in any way from the embodied entity to whom that intelligence belongs, because to me, they absolutely seem symbiotic and necessarily crafted to complement one another in ways that are totally inextricable and comparable to other embodied entities.
1: I went to a, um, a neuroscience conference that was, was on cognition, and fun part about it was opened by a neuroevolutionist. And so that they started to talk basically talking about slime mold you know, going way back in terms of intelligence, and I was going, when you have competitive species, like a slime mold, which is very, very basic form of life, that one slime mold would start developing like the equivalent of teeth, so it could eat another slime mold. Now, the slime mold then had to develop a sense of, is there another predator potentially near it? So for its survival, it had to sense what was going on, and these are the and the, all this type of evolution eventually leads to the development of organs which can sense at a distance, such as an eye. And so, we've got this situation where we've we're, we're able to now sense at distance, but we have to integrate these senses, all the information that's coming in, and we have to ultimately turn that into a behaviour. So intelligence is ultimately about taking the almost infinite dimensions of the world and converting them into a low dimensional space of behavior, which has to improve the organism in some way. And so the more adaptable it is, then we'd say it's, it's, it's more intelligent. Like your example with your dog is that the dog's growing up in a human environment but can navigate it, can adapt to that. And people are incredibly amazing at this i mean we we can live in all kinds of different extreme environments in the world and we come up with clothes or space suits if we're in completely hostile environments so we're adapting the world to us and so i think that you know those measures of and one measure of intelligence is like resourcefulness as well is how can you use the resources that are available to you in order to achieve something
0: So under that definition, are we, and and we're going to uh, talk a lot today about artificial intelligence, are we using the term artificial intelligence to describe something accurately? Is what we're describing as the massive amount of computational power and prowess of uh, systems that generate, for example, outputs like chat GPT, should we be describing that as artificial intelligence? Is that an apt label for what this entity is, is AI intelligent in the way that you are defining intelligence.
1: Yeah. So you could say that something like chat gdb 3 is not resourceful because it's it's not a autonomous organism that is is trying to achieve a particular goal. It's answering a question. But the way that it's trained is... You'll you'll have a training training procedure which is changing the, the weights of the neural network in a system which is giving it sort of rewards to change particular weights because it's producing a better answer. And then those are kind of similar to how animals learn with reinforcement learning. So there's elements of it which are like that. The other thing is that it's forming a statistical model of the world and it's predicting what might come next so with the prediction of what's what's going to come next that's a vital thing for survival of animals so but it's coming from a very different place it's not explicitly engineered to survive it's it's basically trying to predict what comes next so that a human can use it so but the term artificial intelligence i think is incredibly overused or very broadly used. So because people will say something like an image recognition system is artificial intelligence or a chatbot is artificial intelligence. And I think the old definition of the term is more something like artificial general intelligence, where we we think of something being intelligent, like we think humans are intelligent. So it's a overused term. It's kind of like cooking, but you're talking about the specifics of of a curry versus a you know sushi. all of these are different there's many different components of it. And then if we also think about intelligence as being quite holistic, we can be emotionally intelligent, we can be you know very intelligent at recognizing things. these are sort of different categories. And I think what's really, amazing about humans is that we we take things very holistically not only do we take what's happening with our bodies our environment what's going on you know i'm hungry therefore i have to search for food i'm cold i need to go get some clothes but we also think about what we did yesterday we think about what we might have to do in the next day and we're constantly jumping between all these different modalities of thought to do with our body but also to do with our future plans it might be to do with money and all these different things and so the beauty of human intelligence is that we float between all of these different worlds and some of them are very driven by our current needs when you have you know massive ontological system like chat gb3 that has embodied you know it's it's read the internet pretty much and so there which and the internet is composed of a lot of human experience where people have been writing about it so you've got these sort of Symbolic relationships between things, but it's never actually experienced them. So it's kind of like being told about a city, but never having visited it. So it doesn't have a gnosis. It knows as a, you know, um, fact-based memory.
0: I want to talk a little bit about uh, a different kind of, I think, use of AI or at least a, a, a form of AI that to me seems to depart from the way that I've heard AI described, particularly as a, as a disembodied kind of form of abstract consciousness or a disembodied form of computational power that doesn't necessarily uh, account for what we have been talking about in this conversation, which is the connection between sensing and all of the different senses that we Bring to bear on how we perceive and uh, metabolize and think about the world, and I think that your project, as, at least as far as I understand it, Baby X, tries to do this uh, second kind of thinking—that is to say, that kind of embodied thinking. I think. Can you walk us through the project?
1: Yeah. So, Baby X project was really a, a kind of the the genesis for it was I was. Worth out so my background was in bioengineering, but then somehow or the other I ended up in the in the film industry doing digital actors. And what I was doing in the film industry was you know capturing the facial expressions, the behaviours of actors, and then transcribing them onto computer characters. The goal there was to do it with enough fidelity that the user would get a sense of soul when they're actually seeing the computer characters capturing so that you're looking at something which is artificial but it feels like it's thinking and feeling which is kind of like the essence of animation and you know I was working with actors doing that and but with having a background in bioengineering where I was used to building computer models or computer simulations of of you know different physiological um, systems I was really interested in can we simulate the behaviors which we take to the conscious, you know, so for example, you know, if an eye is looking at something, it's moved for a reason. And why did it move? And why did it move in exactly that way? And so I started thinking about how can we create models, computational models, which can drive biological behaviors, which make you think that something's thinking. And Basically, I went down the rabbit hole of that and thought, well, actually, you have to build a brain in order to drive all of these elements, because where the eyes are looking is depending on what's going on in the visual world. It can also be driven internally, but then you're reacting to sound. Um, Why are you smiling? You're feeling in a particular way. Oh, you know, we need to build an emotional model. We need to build a, a model of hearing. We need to build a model of vision. And all of these things, you keep going down the rabbit hole, where ultimately you go. Well, to, to in order to create a computer to animate a human realistically in meaningful ways, in other words, every single twitch of the eye or blink of the eyelid is driven for a reason. That then you need to build those models. So that was the sort of genesis of the project. And, I, and at the time, and I was also in, interested in, could you author? A Character, if you built all of this, could you author a character in the way that a novelist would author a character? So, a novelist, you know, will basically imagine a potentially an imaginary person and simulate in their own mind what they may do in a particular circumstance. So, if you could create a computer character, like, you know, it could be Gollum or King Kong or something like that, and put that character in a situation where you have to directly interact with it. What would it do? And so the idea of that you're actually what you're actually creating is characteristics. The story then becomes infinite. Like in, in the in the film world, for example, the story happens over two hours or something like that and it's the same story every time. But if you make something which is a characteristic, operates on characteristics and then it's interactive, then the stories are co-created and they're infinite. And so that kind of After thinking about all of these things, and I would always had a a, a long-term interest in, in neuroscience, the brain, also artificial intelligence and computer graphics, I thought, I really have to put all these things together. And then, so I started a lab to do that. And then I thought, well, what's the right form to create with this? And then, oh, it has to be a baby, because a baby is the, you know, metaphorical blank slate it's the it's the learning machine it's a sponge it's emotional it's got all of these things so it's the right embodiment for a nascent model of intelligence
0: so i want to go to a description of baby x that i read of the project the description includes the following statement the motivation for baby x was to create a holistic biologically inspired model for driving forces architectures and processes from which the behavior we so often take for granted emerges as a means of exploring theories of our nature and to show how the various underlying systems interconnect. How would you know that baby X is working and by working, what I mean is responding that a way a real baby would respond, learning a way that a, a real baby would learn. How could you tell whether your model is just responding because you've trained the model to respond as a baby versus the model organically or intuitively producing this behavior? What, what would you look for in order to tell the difference? How do you know that what you're doing is working?
1: Yeah, so that works on different levels. On a very low level, we look at something like a, a neural network learns in real time and we can kind of see has it learned that like we and and with the what we've built with baby x and the system that we built around it allows us to basically mind read so we can go into and visualize every single computational neuron in the model we can visualize all the different cognitive models that we have interconnecting we can visualize things like the the neuromodulator levels and so we can Basically, explore the model and see if it works how we imagine it would work. These are com- components of the model. So, think about it like you're building a piano. You can test each note. Does that note sound right? Is it creating the right frequency? Now, nobody really knows how all these components interact and come together. You know, we're still at the absolute t- tip of the iceberg in terms of the knowledge of this. So, you can look at things and make sure that every piano key is working, but then is it going to create music? Is it going to create a particular thing? Now, with that, what we're doing to validate the model is having it actually interact with real people. So we have parents or caregivers interacting with baby X. And if we can elicit the same types of behaviors out of the parents that they would with a real child, then at least the signals that it's creating are natural. So this is a bit like the Contiki expedition. They built a raft to figure out whether you could raft across the ocean to get to America. And they're able to do it. Now, did they prove that that's how the migration happened there? No, it doesn't prove that, but it does show that one method can get there. So it's kind of like you're showing a potential pathway that may not be the right pathway, but at least you're getting from A to B. And so the validation of the model happens, we, we look at it you know all these different scales, and you can also do the equivalent of something like a lesion study. If we remove part of the system, does it behave like somebody who had brain damage in that area? You know, For example, if we... Disconnect some particular pathway. Will it behave in the same way that that would happen with the real person?
0: So, what surprised you most in this project? What were you not expecting that you discovered, or what was not supposed to happen that happened, or what happened that was not supposed to happen?
1: It's, I mean, in in some ways, it's 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 an extremely humbling experience because it's like you know I built the the original subject for the baby model was, you know, my youngest daughter, who was a baby at the time, so kind of scanned her. And of course, she developed so much faster than the than the computer model, you know, in in a completely humbling way. And I think what has been the most fascinating part of the the journey in a way, has been all the pathways that you have to go down, all the rabbit holes that you have to go down in order to Put all these different elements together, and then to still know that you know you're still at the at the beginning in many ways. The surprises have been I think there's there's been lots of interesting ones. something funny which happened the other day is the baby said no, you know, asking it to do something and it refused to do it, and <laughs> that was a that was a surprise. So you know, it's been a while trying to figure out why that happened. And it's, so there's a few different theories.
0: I do not myself have children. But I can imagine that a real baby would say no fair, fairly regularly, um, so that seems at least to be uh, consistent with what you might expect a young child or an infant to do. What's your theory? The 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 way the model's been built, so it's a lot of different
1: systems interacting. So there's an emotional system. So when it's interact, so what or I should describe more about the the, the project. So. We have the the baby model, which is approximately 18 months to two years old. That's the sort of age range we're looking at. And the reason we're looking at that age range is that it's the, it, there's basic language, there's emotion and it can do tasks. It can move its hand it can it can, it can move things around. And the particular, the particular bigger goal of what we're trying to do is we're actually exploring models of cooperation and the, you know the goal is because if you think about human cooperation it's the most powerful force in history so humans interacting together human minds interacting together have created the most amazing artworks they've created rockets that can go to the moon medicine films all kinds of different things humans interacting with intelligent machines i think will define the next era of history so how do we make that interconnection as fluid as possible and so what One of the things that we're looking at is the absolute basis of human cooperation. Human cooperation is happening in real time. We're we're interacting, and so when a parent is interacting with a child, and vice versa, there is a constant feedback loop going on. And you're the parent is attending to the emotion of the baby, what the baby's doing, teaching looking for teaching moments. There's emotion co-regulation going on. All of these are some aspects. So we designed a study where it's a shared interaction study. So we create these different games. Like these are typical puzzles that a, a two-year-old may play with. So, you know, there's, there's things like stacking blocks or there is putting animals and in, shapes into, into slots and things like that. So the standard sort of toddler games, if you like. And, we're making those very general so that you can the the baby model should be able to go between different games it should be able to play a game of peekaboo which is like a social type game but then go to something where it's moving objects around and you should be able to teach it while it's doing those things so in order to do that um we set up a, a model where the the parent or caregiver on one hand moves objects around and via a video conference link pretty much the baby is doing it on the other side and we did experience where we did that with parents interacting with real children their own children moving these things around and we recorded all of that to look for the different signals and now what we're doing is we're now replacing the real child with baby x so then the parent or caregiver is now doing the same type of game but with the digital baby as the as the partner and so it's a the baby in order to make sort of realistic baby behaviour, you know, the baby's not just sitting there. The baby's playing, coming up with ideas. It's it's um you know moving things around. It's trying to do things, and if it's maybe trying to reach something that it can't reach, um, it struggles and it has to vocalise. It's like a like we do as a basis of cooperation. If we get stuck, we need to ask for help, and you know it goes right back down to. Mammalian uh, distress signaling, you know, to the mother or something like that, if 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 the baby's in trouble, and so these things trigger vocalizations, and all of these elements are kind of coming together in this in this model.
0: As you're talking, I'm realizing that I think my grasp on what this project actually looks like is less and less firm, and I'm wondering, you know, this is obviously a audio medium, but I think it might be helpful for listeners if you could describe what they would see if they walked in and saw a Baby X. Would this be an uncanny valley like figure uh, interacting with uh, other uncanny figures of mothers, etc.? <laughs> Do you have a room with a crib? <laughs>
1: so if you, if you if you if you yeah, so if you walked in and you interacted with Baby X, what you'd see is basically there's a screen and there's a baby on the other side of the screen. And on that screen, maybe objects like a stack of blocks, you can reach out, touch the screen, and move the blocks with your hand. And the baby can as well on the other side. So the machine is almost like a piece of glass between you and the the child on the other side. And so the experience that we did with parents, caregivers, and real children was that we had them using a screen touch screen, where both parties could move the objects on a shared screen and the the goal for that was to explore cooperation you know how do how do we cooperate if we want to build a tower then we have to have a shared intention we might do turn taking all kinds of things and we wanted to basically replicate that with the digital baby so then the digital baby on the other side of the screen is kind of reaching out and moving things and every time that it it's doing things; those are all teachable moments, if it's emotionally in the right state to be taught. And so, for example, you might pick up a octopus and go, "Look, it's an octopus." Or where does the octopus go? Where should I put it? That type of thing. And then the baby is going to respond to that. Or you might say, "You know, um what are you doing?" And then the baby, depending on what it's doing, will answer. And well, how do you feel? And so you, because you can see the emotions and what the baby's doing now. The, and the baby's building emotional connections as it's interacting with things. So you can tell it that things are scary, and this is a scary snake. The baby may get frustrated at something and generate its own emotional um, relationship to to these objects on the screen and get frustrated. Which leads me back to why I think it said no is because I think it was getting very annoyed at some of the objects because it wasn't able to reach them. And then it kind of got the idea that it can't do that. And that I think the, the language, the sort of language of, of, of not being able to do something had enough negativity in, in it that it led to a response of, no, I'm not going to do that. So I think that's kind of how it worked. But this is part of the fun of it is that, you know, we're trying to build an emergent system because, you know, people can do all kinds of different things. And so, there's sort of quite fun things that can happen that you don't expect.
0: I want to draw uh, here a little bit from my background as a literary scholar because I am very interested in what we might call the idea of character and how we understand the reality of these fictional persons that we read about, uh, really, these black scribbles on white pages or white screens nowadays, where we project onto a system of proper nouns and descriptions and actions all of the characteristics and, and entities that we typically think belong to persons. And we feel with these fictional entities. And we, when they get angry, we feel anger, anger for them or with them. We feel their passions, et cetera. And you know, this is a broader conversation about how we understand the reality of fictional persons or the reality of fictional worlds, something that's called verisimilitude. But it's also, I think, uh, led me to think a lot about what makes a character seem real. And there's one theory that says that what makes a character real is the idea of consistency. We say that somebody behaves in character. And what we mean is they do something that's typical to what we expect of that person. Their behavior, in other words, is in line with what we think their behavior ought to be. When we say somebody behaves out of character, we're saying that they're behaving in a way that's inconsistent with what we think that their character is. There's one theory of character that says characters are real when they behave in a consistent way. But another theory of character says that the true mark of the creativity of that character by the author and what really grants a character its verisimilitude is when it can surprise you in believable ways. In other words, when it doesn't do what it's told or what you expect it to do. It sounds like Baby X in that moment was behaving out of character, something that many uh, theorists argue is a mark of creativity. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that or am I right? Am I, am I on something?
1: Yeah, I I, I, think, I think very, very much about um, character and personality and because in, in a way, yeah, because the way I think about characters is the same as you're describing. It's like a, it's like a weather system. This is summer. This is winter. But if you're on any particular summer day, the weather could be doing anything. But in a general pattern it fits in to a to it's it's warmer it's generally warmer than it was in winter. And with personality, um I'm you know, a strong believer in nature and nurture. I think it's it's, it's both. And so how do you give something characteristics? And so as humans, we could be very sensitive to noise or or to to quick movements and every we've all got different sensitivities those are just at the base level like and that that's to do with it can be to do with how many receptors that you have in your fingers how sensitive you are to touch for example and also just the the your neurochemical makeup can reflect that so there's this low level thing which will make you sensitive in different ways That's the kind of nature part of things. And then the nurture part is all of your experiences in your life are going to basically give you an expectation what might happen next. And so those are constantly interacting. And so the sort of idea for creating models in this way is that you are creating a system which will be emergent because there's enough independent variables going on there that these can interact in ways which are un, unexpected. Like the emotional system itself is is pretty much a chaos system. It is, it is non-repetitive. It will do things differently every time. And this is flavoring the underlying experiences. So So the baby may be doing a particular thing, but it will never do exactly the same thing twice. And so in a way, there's always going to be some variation in what's going on. The characteristics would be that there's a general tendency for doing something, we, so, but we can kind of zoom into the, the, um, the brain models on these, where we can kind of see um, the intent to act. So on the baby model, there's particular displays that we can put up and we can, before the baby is, is basically going to do a particular action, is it going to wave? Is it going to you know, move something? Is it going to cry? We can kind of see how these different things are competing. And and we can kind of see and, and it's and it's the the all the causes to make it do a particular thing are coming from multiple angles. And it's a open system. So how you as the user are responding is also flavoring its experience. So you know, if you're smiling at it or saying nice things, that will have a calming effect. How the baby responds will then change how you respond. So there's a feedback system in that way, but then the baby has all these internal variables which are changing. The characteristics of these are the things which are the, it's mean, it's it's normal, if you like, for that particular system. So, you know, that's the, and, and you know, other other nuances of, of characteristics are particular states that um, you can be in. There's a really interesting book called Multiplicity on um, multiple personality disorder, and you know this is talking about people's characteristics. We're saying that most people have you know these particular particularly stable characteristics. So they're re- they're in a few states. You may have a different personality in the way that you interact with, say, your teacher, that you may interact with your sister or brother, and so you've got these whole different relationships so so they can you you know you can exist be in the same body but have these very different characters so so like your friends may see you differently to how your boss sees you for example so they'll both have an idea of what your character is because you're in a particular situation and so and so anyway if the multiple personality thing is it's like people have a whole ton of these different states that they can be in they can switch between but each one of them is like a an attractor it, it, it it's like you're in a particular state and it's kind of there's lots of variation but it's happening roughly around these areas so I kind of think about characteristics and that
0: well I wanted to ask you following up on some of that what did you learn from baby x or what are you learning about babies and also about ai what did you Think you know that maybe has been challenged or what did you not know that has emerged about what and how it means to think as a baby and what and how ai does when we when we call it thinking when we say that it's thinking
1: in a way the the journey is is where i mean we're still building we're still still um working at how things work so what the journey has been like is building different components different cognitive models which will basically recreate particular behaviors and we have to build them in a way that they interact with everything else but as soon as you do that you then realize the next thing that's missing and then we account for that and then there's the next thing that's missing and there's the next thing and so in what we've been trying to build we're thinking about all the diff- all these different elements, like okay, what creates goal-driven behavior? What causes play? What, what's really giving the autonomy here? How we might think of a person being autonomous? Um, what's the metacognitive state? Um, how is it that you can declare change into sentence? What you're what you're feeling or exp- express that? And so the surprises, I think it's it's in trying to attempt something. Quite holistic. It's the the main takeaway is that um, you just can't take what we do for granted. We are so complicated. Even if you just think about how we pick up a cup on the table, is ridiculously complicated, and all the things that we have to do to get that right. And you see this in robotics really clearly, and how difficult it is to make a robot that can actually not break things or carefully pick something up. And in computer graphics, it's, it's easier because the robot doesn't have to deal with the, the complex physical constraints, but it, you, you still have similar challenges in building a system which kind of self-regulates and, and, and controls things.
0: I thought maybe I might use some of your comments in our conversation about creativity, or I thought I could use it to maybe coerce you to wade into the debate around generative AI and creativity that right now is bustling on the internet. Recent emerging AI technologies have, to me at least, uh, made the case that GAI can be inventive. I came across some jokes that an AI had written. I thought they were funny, At at least, you know, they made me laugh. Um, I'll just share some of those jokes with the listeners. Uh, The jokes included the generative AI was asked to write jokes in the style of an onion headline. The first joke is experts warned that the war in Ukraine could become even more boring. Another (laughs) joke was budget of new Batman movie swells to 200 million as director insists on using real Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Story of woman who rescues shelter dog with severely matted fur will inspire you to open up a new tab and visit another <laughs> website. They're funny, right? Yeah. Um, do you see generative AI as accomplishing human creativity or replacing that creativity or intellectual labor? If not, what stands in the way?
1: Okay, I, I think it... So, you know, there's a, an idea of, of creativity being that... You're able to recombine things to create something new. And that's kind of what the generative AI is doing. It's got a, you know, you, you if you think about all the words which are representing all these different concepts and you jumble them around and create something which has then still got a measure of probability that that's a, a, a valid sentence, that's what the large language models are doing. You know, it's coming up with something which, there is some noise in it, so it will come up with something different, and you can change the level of noise. They call it the temperature of what it will create. So then you can create wildly unexpected sentences, which still are readable because they follow. There is some statistical correlation between you know each word in the sequence. Now, when we you know you, you were talking about it earlier, I think but coming up with new ideas. The amazing thing about words is that you can, there you can basically use them as Lego blocks to create new things. So I can go, I can take, for example, colour, you know, green, blue, red, and oh, here's a brown cow. Oh, I'm going to have a blue cow, and all I've done is I've taken a concept and I've put it in a unusual combination, and I've created something new in that way. Another aspect of creativity is that you're changing the form of something like, you know, here's a Salvador Dali painting and I'm going to stretch the legs of the horse out or something like that. Then we've got levels of creativity where you're deliberately, you know, as artists are trying to change people's perception of the world. And so you're you're creating something very much with the audience in mind in order to induce a particular emotional effect or to make them think about something. So I think that machines are not doing the latter there. They may be able to, if we make them do that, like force them into doing that type of thing. So that sort of latter creativity is still in the domain of of human artists. The being able to mix things up, the computer is able to do that quite well. However, it's still based on what it's experienced in, in terms of what data has been fed into it. So the statistics of what it does is is related to what it's been trained on. Now, if we think about, you know, art it, when in, when the camera was created, that made a big shift in art from representational art to expression expressionist art and non-representational art. And I think we're going to see the same thing now in terms of human creativity because if you can do something that MidJourney or ChatGDP3 can come up with, which is like a statistical average of all the things that are being fed into, then you may as well have just used one of those programs. You have to do something really different. And so I, I'm excited because I think it's going to to push creativity into realms which are going to be even more human. They're going to have even more resonance with what it means to be human versus to be a machine. Uh, I think that I think that's you know I think so. There's a humanism I think that's going to really come out of this.
0: The flip side. <laughs> you probably love a question that starts with the flip side. <laughs> the flip side of this is you know I'm with you when you're talking about language as Lego blocks. In fact, I would even take that one step further because one of the ways that I think about writing and one of the ways that I have to explain now writing to undergraduates who are tempted to use ChatGPT for their papers is that writing is not the record of thought. Writing is the process of producing thought. You find the exact right Lego block or word, and it unlocks a portal to a, a thought that you did not know that you had until you had articulated something. That yeah. is just saying that when we speak or when we write, we're passing consciousness through the crucible of language in order to clarify what we think. Yeah. That is... In, in my sense what what writing is of course yes. as a product of of thought and a published or or textual form on the internet whether or not you have a stochastic parrot giving you what looks like that pro- thought process or the record of that thought process or whether it really is somebody's record of having processed their thought through that crucible of language and refined it with it words that's increasingly, I think, not distinguishable. And connecting this idea with your work for me it has raised some interesting questions because I'm very concerned about a ecology of textual communications where human thought is indistinguishable from generative AI textual outputs. And I'm wondering whether any of the work that you are currently doing in thinking about how cognition works when it is embodied might Uh, help us to think about how we might detect what is human generated content versus generative AI content. Is there anything in your work to suggest that giving an embodied texture to consciousness or understanding GAI and the differences that might be outputted when it has a embodied or at least a simulated embodied context might produce different thought that might provide some means of detecting the former, that is to say, generative AI from the latter, which is human.
1: Yeah. So we we think about um, grounded cognition where, you know, if I have a language model and it's just trained on words and it's never experienced the world, it's just been trained on the statistical likelihood that one symbol follows another, then it, doesn't have an idea about the physicality of that it doesn't have an idea about the emotion associated with that which will be very unique to the experiencer so one person's experience of a dog may be very different to another's if they've been bitten by a dog as a child and so we every thought that we have and and you know when you're talking about a writer coming up with the the building blocks is there's an emotional component to that as well because all of those things are sitting and you'll be having a gut feeling of whether these things are fitting right with, with how you conceive of something, or does it feel, does it create the emotion that I'm that I'm after? And so the emotional aspect of that is also related to your experience as a person. So your voice as a writer is tied to your own personal experience of the world in a way. And you know, so everybody's got a different voice. And, you know, that's one of the, you know, wonders of having, you know, so many different writers is that we get a, it's almost like I see it as a um, holograph. It's very holographic and that we're getting, you know, the more books that you read, it's like, you're seeing more pictures, more fragments of holograms which come together to give you a sort of better representation of the world in general. So those, those things there where we take the non-verbal components of thought i think a very very valuable so you know it's that's what's that's what's kind of missing and that's what where the the more that something's embodied and it's got a sensory experience of the world which it can change that is the that's the piece that's missing that we want to relate to and in terms of You know, the artificial intelligence that I guess I want to see created and be part of creating is one where it's relatable. It's got all the sort of qualities that you'd look for in another person. It's cooperative. It's agreeable. It's adaptable. It's flexible. It can play all of these elements. But one of the key parts is that you want to be relatable. So say, for example, um, in the future, we have very, very intelligent AI and it's on some spaceship orbiting saturn for example wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to ask it what it was like now if the, if it's saying what it's like if i ask you what something's like you'll say oh i loved it there'll be an emotional component to it or you'll have some reaction to it where you're drawing it back to your unique point of view and your your physical state in, 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 in a way, your, your emotion about it, you know, how did you feel? And it's like, those things make things relatable. And I think we're, we're, we're not there yet. We've got a big statistical machine, but we can potentially get to a, a state closer to that because once, if we achieve that, then we have this rapport and the creative potential of interacting um, machines where you can actually touch on these other more human levels, I think is is just massive.
0: What limits, if any, do you think AI cannot cross when it comes to producing human seeming content or intellectual labor? Are there any limits that we think? Well, you know, one of
1: the arguments is that is that um, for example, it's about, you know, sentience and suffering. It's like a an AI has never experienced Human suffering—it's never—it's never lived a human life, so it doesn't know all of those components which go into that. And you know, we're talking every formative event that happens, from pre-verbal to you know, or your you experiences as a baby, and then as a child, and then as an adult, and relationships, and all these types of things. So you know, if if if. if if, if an AI is talking to you about a relationship, all it can tell you about is kind of what it's read. So it's like talking to somebody that's never been out of their house. They've watched lots of TV, but they've never been in the world.
0: I think they made a Brandon Fraser movie about that. Blast from the past. Lisa <laughs> silverstone. I wanted to follow up on that question to ask. What ethical questions should technologists working on generative AI technologies or the kinds of deep learning technologies represented by your research, what questions should those technologists be asking themselves on an ethical level?
1: Um, so I think, you know, top of mind is it shouldn't fool people. So this is the, you know, when we look at deep fake and we look at generative AI creating content. We we don't want to be fooled by it that that you know this is the real person that I'm interacting with or, or this is somehow written by a person. So number one, I think it, it's really important that where how how something is generated is really clear to us. We want to have as a symmetric information relationship as possible. So another aspect is um, you know, with the work that we do creating um, you know virtual people that you can interact with one of the the key drivers there is that we what we don't want is something like what's been happening with voice assistants which is like something out of 2001 how, you know basically how you've got a uh, just a lens impassionately watching everything and absorbing everything and that's exactly like a voice assistant sitting in your house it's listening to everything and you don't know what's going on. So there's a massive information asymmetry. If it was a person standing in your living room, you may think twice about what you're saying. So there's this information feedback loop, which I think needs to be more honest and open there. And the other the other aspect is, in terms of the, the generative model, you know, I mean, these are all the standard, the sort of common arguments at the moment. Is you know things like copyright and so forth, and that you know artists are creating things. If you're writing a book, and then that's now been absorbed into a language model, then that language model can spit out you know what you've laboured over for a long time and and tweak it and create new ones. So I think all of those are absolutely valid, you know, valid criticisms of those systems. The ethics that. The, Best more generative AI, the type of work that we're doing in in building the digital models, particularly in the baby model, the types of ethics that that we really focus on there, that if you're creating effectively a a digital human to interact with, then there's an ethical responsibility in how you interact with that character. Say it's baby X and people are, are mistreating baby X how somebody might mistreat a virtual baby may affect how they treat a real child. So it can have a real world sort of influence on what happens. So for example, if they, they are mean to it and it cries and they keep doing it again, then this is actually, you know, does this encourage a um, basically that behavior in the real world? So this is the same sort of argument as, as with video games is does video game violence basically, create a higher propensity for doing that in the real world. And the jury's out on that. You know, there's, there's lots of disagreement on that. But that is a real-world ethical consideration to take into account. Um, the other thing is is that you want, don't want to create uh, attachments. For example, if you make a digital companion and somebody who's emotionally vulnerable um, becomes attached to that, that's another thing that we really want to avoid. A really interesting um, ethical consideration, and we've, we've written a paper on this, Is the ethics from the point of view of baby X? So, if baby X eventually gets to the point where you could consider it a moral patient, then what does that mean? And what is the, and this is almost like touching on levels of what does it take for something actually to have some form of realism? Is it even possible, like for say, for a computational model, can that ever? have any sense of consciousness or sentience or anything like that. And the you know, there's lots of debate over that. But we're actually starting to see some things in the literature where people are seriously discussing those possibilities. My own point of view on the matter is that is that, you know, I see consciousness, a large part of consciousness as process. And I'm not a hundred percent sure whether the substrate matters. There's some People that argue that it has to be biological; it's an innate property of being a biological system. So, and it has to be, it has to basically have the definitions of what makes something alive. We don't know the answers to these questions, but we can think about: well, what if this? Then, what would the situation be? Anyway, as a result of these these types of things, we do take the ethics of, of of creating, especially a vulnerable member of the society like a baby very seriously. And, you know, so we have ethics, we have an ethics committee and we go over um, these elements. I work with um, a couple of researchers, um, Alistair Knott and Mar- Martin Tack. And, and so we, we did a paper called, I think it's called The Ethics of Interaction with a, a neuro Agent. It's a case study of Baby X. And so that's a, that was, a, that came out a couple of years ago where we're just exploring these, these issues. And, and you know, there's so many
0: What dangers do you see emerging from these kinds of technologies? And how do you envision people and institutions creating protections against bad actors and companies and even governments that might try to use these technologies in ways that are harmful or even violative to human rights? That is to say, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. And how are you going to stop it from happening? The
1: work that we're doing is not, I don't consider it, you know, a threat to civilization or anything but i do think that to me the one of the biggest current threats is, is misinformation it's, with, with gen, this is referring to generative ai in particular you know i was using one of these large language models the other day and just yeah you can type in things like you know what's four times 20 and that will tell you 80 so it's not designed to do mathematics but anyway this is a good example and then i basically said okay what's Forty point five times eighty six point two, and then it came up with some absolutely nonsense answer, saying that the temperature is in Fahrenheit and all this sort of stuff. And so you can you can trick you know you, you basically you're popping out of something that's out of its training set, and it can get completely the wrong association out of it. And I uh, I went to an interesting talk the other the other day where basically they were you know psychologists talking about the mind of GTP. And basically they were comparing how GTP would answer standard sort of psychology questions compared to humans. And so they'd give these questions and it it would give great answers, but these questions were textbook examples or similar to them. When they changed the situation to the exact same situation, but using a different scenario, it got it completely wrong so it's very easy for us to be fooled by the the answers of these generative models but because the language that they create is so convincing that's a real that misinformation is massive in terms of creativity no problem that's great we've got a a really interesting creative answer but how do we detect that something's hallucinating well we don't know what the truth is how we would deal with that as people you'd ask you know like if you're a, a prime minister or a president you have a bunch of different advisors and you'll ask for their opinions, a whole bunch of people's opinions, and you'll kind of try to figure out a, a consensus based on that. And we ha- we are going to have to deal with things in a, a, a similar way. You know, it's, uh, I think the important, interesting thing about technology now is that a you have to you know you have to get lots of reference to lots of different um, information sources, and then two if you're looking at a video and it's a, a deep fake. Well, you don't know whether it's a deep fake if it's, it's very realistic. Then we'll end up just believing what we actually see and hear and experience in real life. So there's almost a, a bizarre flip side back to basics on on what you think is really true.
0: I want to ask you about the second part of that question. I don't want to lose that, um, which is how do you envision protections against some of the dangers? And I'll tell you what I think some of the dangers are. I'm concerned not just about misinformation as the result of a generative AI hallucination, but I'm worried that bad actors will deliberately use ChatGPT, for example, to create at scale large amounts of disinformation. I'm worried that bad actors may use these models in order to, for example, spread hate speech or to infiltrate, for example, a mom blog with some white supremacist content that's Marginally recognizable as, as white supremacist content, leading people down that kind of rabbit hole. I'm worried about, for example, letter writing campaigns that generative AI produces to Congress people that suggest to those Congress people that 7,000 constituents suddenly have strong feelings about a particular legislative issue. Do you see any means, either technical or procedural, to combat some of those, uh, those harms or dangers?
1: I agree with those dangers completely. You know, I've heard, and you know, we're also in a, in a situation too, where, you know, previously the content on the internet was largely, was mainly human generated content. And now the internet is going to be absolutely spammed with AI generated content and it'll, you'll have to detect whether or not it's AI-generated before you train on it, because otherwise you're just going to be eating your own garbage, basically.
0: Well, not just that, but also that that content that generative AI produces becomes part of what it then metabolizes as part of the internet, right? Yeah, that feedback loop.
1: Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And it's like a dumber, it's a a dumb feedback loop, which basically, you know, keeps feeding. It's, It's basically, it's stuck in its own echo chamber, and which... know ties into what you're saying with you know creating you know hate speech and things like that where you you, it's 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 a perfect vehicle for creating you know hate speech echo chambers um i think you know we mean to escape some of these we really need to think about the social media technologies that are allowed that are effectively you know creating these echo chambers in the first because you've added an AI into them and it's like you, you've got the worst aspects of motivated bad actors on steroids. And, and so, you know, one of the, one of the potential fixes is, is changing the, the algorithms which, which create those, biasing them to not repeat anything which has got a similar meaning, for example. You know, one of the amazing things with the large language models and how, how they're able to create, you know, embeddings which are representing meaning in a very, you know, relatively small, you know, number of dimensions. It's, it's, it's quite profound. Maybe you only accept what's an original thought. You know, this has been spoken before. We don't need to hear that thing again. So maybe the most tolerant thing that we can do is to basically say, your voice has to be new. You know, you have to give a new perspective on this in order to stay in the room.
0: I think we have time for one last question. Do you think that these new emerging principles and possibilities of AI and what we're seeing AI as capable of doing is changing what it means to be human or how we think of ourselves as human? I know you talked a little bit before about how you think it might push or prompt new humanisms or new uh, forms of creativity. But what about what we do when we, Think of ourselves as human. Do you think that it's changing that too?
1: Yes, so I think um, I think what's been so profound with in particular the the large language models is that they not only are they able to generate sentences and things, is that they can generate plans, that you can ask them questions about things. They can write computer code. And they can, and you know, there's been simulations of sort of different social situations where it's able to get relationships, and it kind of shows how much of our own thinking could potentially be operating under these principles. And so it is changing the way that people think that thought might work. Um, th- this is the same thing with when computers developed in neural networks, people started thinking about cognition in a different way and now I think we're at that stage yet again where we've got something where because the large language model is taking into account what's just been said in its answer it's got a reflective aspect to it and reflection is one of the key things about being human is we mull over things we reflect on things after they happen and in some ways language model, the disembodied aspect of it, because this is where we talk about having a and the embodiment then is makes it, it makes things about something, it gives it a deeper meaning. but the reflective mechanics of that, yeah, it, I, I, I think it is a it, it can't be discounted as a potential mechanism that reflects aspects of human thought.
0: Thank you very much, Mar.
1: Thank you.